You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the X-Man, episode four. I'm your host, Doc Coyle. The original X-Man, well, not the original X-Man, I'm sure there are many people who have quit before me or have been kicked out of things, moved on, made transitions, tried new endeavors. So we've had a crazy week. We have a new president. Um, I'm not gonna get too much into it. Our last episode was a election, it was a pre-election special with my man, Phil Labonte from All That Remains, and we got a lot into a lot of it there, and I don't want to make this show a political show. We're going to talk about everything. Uh, Phil actually wanted to do a follow-up episode, which, I would, to be truthful, I was too unnerved and kind of affected by what had gone on to to make another show about that. And all at the same time, I didn't want, you know, th- this show has different aims than just kind of being that. Um, and I'm sure we'll get, we'll get Phil on here again at some point, like I said, to do a more traditional X-Men talk about his, his journey. But, um, but yeah, I have to say it is, I have, uh, embarrassingly so kind of fallen into a little bit of a post-election depression. And, um, if someone wants to actually really know about my feelings, I don't know how many people follow my writing. I put a piece up about my thoughts on the election on my website, www.coil.net. It's called Transmissions from the Bubble. Why did the smart people get this all wrong? And uh, that pretty much sums it up. So I don't want to belabor that. And I know there's probably people who listen to this who support, you know, all sides of this issue. Um, But it's also important that I I be honest and not just, um, you know, play it to, uh, to try and appease everyone. You know, I want to, I want to represent who I really am. And I'm honestly, I'm, I'm disappointed in, uh, in what we did. And, uh, I feel like it's a big step back for the country from a symbolism standpoint. Um, and you know, I'll just, I'll just leave that there. I thought we had kind of moved, uh, beyond some of these issues and it looks like we're, um, we're back in the uh, in the muck, and we have a lot of figuring out to do collectively. We have to listen to each other, learn from each other. I've been speaking to a lot of people who support uh, Donald Trump in the last week, um, and it's been really important for me to do that uh, to get their perspective and you know learn learn a little bit. We all could uh, do ourselves a favor by talking to as many people as possible. I would actually recommend a 
if you actually are interested in, in hearing other people's perspectives on what just happened, there's a great podcast from This American Life, which is usually one of the top two or three podcasts every week. It's a pretty amazing show. And it's entitled The Sun Comes Up, and they profile um, about a dozen, maybe not that many, but a handful of different Americans' um view on what happened and they really show all sides and it's really balanced and it gives you if you're really interested to see how this has affected people um i really suggest you listen to it and it's uh i've been seeking therapy in all kinds of ways and kind of learning other people's stories and getting people other's perspectives i find to be really super helpful well, I don't want to belabor that subject too much. Like I said, if you want to hear what I think about it, please go over to DocCoil.net and check out my article. Just to reiterate, please head over to iTunes as well. Leave a rating, leave a comment. That really helps the show. You know, luckily we've charted in the music category of podcasts every single show we've put out. So that's amazing. And it's just, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to keep everything going with this. And also, if you want to find me on social media, it's uh, my Twitter and Instagram is at DocCoil, D-O-C-C-O-Y-L-E. And you can just search me on Facebook to find my professional page. My main page is, is pretty much maxed out, but you can follow my stuff on there as well. So let's move on to our guest for this episode, Mr. Bruce Lamont. And if you're not familiar with him, I guess his name is probably more known in, in some underground circles, but he's a friend of mine. I've known him for a really long time, and I thought his story was really interesting. So even if you're not, you don't know his stuff, He's he was in a band called Yakuza as a singer, and he also plays saxophone. Uh, he's also in a new band called Corrections House, uh, another new band called Brain Tentacles, which we didn't get into uh, in this episode. Um, and he also plays in uh, one of the biggest Led Zeppelin tribute bands in the country called Led Zeppelin II, in addition to having a solo career. And I think his story, in terms of someone who does music professionally and, and really over the course of several decades, is really fascinating. And I'm really glad I, I got to get him on here. And he's kind of breaks the rule. He's not technically an X-Man, because I don't know if he's actually quit any of his bands. So, But I don't think we should hold that against him. And, and certainly, I'm not going to, if I can have the opportunity to speak to someone, I'm not going to stick too hard and fast to the uh, to the title of the show. Uh, rather just have interesting people with great stories. So also to kind of give you guys a precursor, we mentioned a man named Steve Joe in the interview. And Steve used to be the A&R guy at um, Century Media Records. Now he's over at Prosthetic, but he worked with God Forbid, Shadows Fall, a bunch of bands like that. And he was a really great guy. Actually just got featured in a Metal Sucks article about the most important people in the music industry. I couldn't agree more. I love the guy. So just for some reference, we 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 use we mentioned his name and I just wanted to give you guys some background info. So enjoy this talk with Bruce Lamont. All right, Mr. Bruce, thank you for uh, coming out. Of course. How are you feeling? Feeling great. You're feeling Live great? Live in Los Angeles, California. Live in Los Angeles, California. So you're in town with your uh, your Led Zeppelin tribute band. Yeah, we didn't play in LA. We just uh, were doing a couple of shows on the, you know, the West Coast here. to San Diego last night. Tomorrow night is actually Lincoln, California, just north of Sacramento at a... Uh, some casino i don't remember the name so now some people might be listening to this and say okay so you have this guy 
on your show and he sings for a Led Zeppelin tribute band. <laughs> what, who, what, what's, what's going on here? So I think it's, um, you know, it's funny. We, we've known each other probably at this point for like 12, 13 years. Yep. Something like that. But, you know, and I, I know, so, so Bruce is in a band called Yakuza. And the way we met was through our, we were both on Century Media Records at the time. And uh, our A&R guy, Steve Joe, basically linked us up and let us stay with with uh, Bruce. Basically, Bruce gave us a place to stay at when we were out in, in Chicago, where he's, where he's from. So what I kind of want, you know, so I know Yakuza. And I know this new, uh, I guess it's not new, but this uh, tribute band uh, you do is called Led Zeppelin 2. Is that correct? Correct. Um, so, like, let's go back to, like, even before we met, because I know you've done a lot of different stuff. Okay. So, so, so going back to, like, that, that time, like, what, like what, was, was there anything before Yakuza? Like, what was... I played in a couple bands around Chicago. Um, I fronted a band in the 90s, kind of weird, like... Alternative rock silliness. Um, not the the band guys weren't silly. I was silly as the front man, just trying to you know, as a young man trying to find myself in the rock and roll world. Did you grow up in Chicago? I did. Born and raised uh, South Side. I lived moved onto the North Side in the early '90s and uh, been there ever since. Um, did that. Uh, played saxophone when I was a young young man, and I picked it back up uh, in the mid '90s. Where I started to, because uh, I was kind of falling in love with, I had this like this like dual life where I was into like rock and that kind of stuff, but I also was a big fan of like jazz and improvisational music, and that was kind of like a lot of stuff was starting to bu- bubble up in this like underground scene, um, particularly this club called the Empty Bottle. Um, they had this series every Tuesday and Wednesday night. Um, There's a guy named Ken Vandermark, another uh, artist in town named John Corbett, were the curators, and the stuff they were bringing through was just mind blowing. You know, it's like. Well, Ken was an amazing saxophonist, but they're also bringing all these European players in that I just real crazy, um, a little more on the noisy side. So I got, I fell in love with that stuff, you know, and that I kind of rekindled my interest in playing saxophone. So I started back up again after not playing for like 10 years. What's your training with saxophone? Uh, well, I, you know, I played in school band until I was like 15 and I had private instructors and all that. When I picked back up, um, I started to, I was studying with a guy at DePaul University named Mark Colby. He was more of like a traditional jazz saxophonist, uh, you know, real clean kind of bop player. And then actually I studied with Ken Vandermark for a while, who's not a traditional saxophone player by any means. Um, you know, compositionally he would write out things and whatnot, but like, you know, would manipulate the horn in, in, uh, it's the way I'm uh, trying to figure this out. Oh, yeah, I keep talking in the mic. Um, he would just, you know, he would make sounds and noises that maybe you wouldn't normally make with a saxophone, but I thought that shit was really cool. So With, yeah. like, effects and stuff? Or? Uh, no, actually, just shrunken and, scree- you know, screeching and biting the reed and doing all that kind of stuff. No. Um, but I just thought it was really neat, and he did it really well and just full of energy and his band, the Vandermark Five, also had this guitar player who was like a huge like COC fan, you know, and so and he that kind of came off in his playing a little bit. So he was kind of like this like more like punky, kind of metal, jazz. His name's Jeb Bishop, played trombone too. Fucking killer, man! Like so good, like just there's nothing I ever heard before. I was like, this is so awesome. But so yeah, so I was kind of living this this dual life of you know, rock, and then I, I was got way back into metal in the later '90s. Um, 
thanks to bands like Neurosis and Meshuga and uh, particularly Candiria from Brooklyn, New York. We are, we are Candiria from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually wrote that down. I was like, uh, so people who aren't familiar with um, Yakuza, like, how would, how, what would you, like, you guys were, so, as I looked up, they were called avant-garde metal. Yeah, right. What is that? Does that mean anything? I, I, I don't know. Nope, I don't know. I said someone, somebody called it Xperi Metal. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It was like, I mean, again, those guys were a group trying to figure out what they wanted to do, and they were looking for a front man. And I, let's we'll fast forward here to the later '90s, where I was, you know, like I said, I was playing in bands where I was playing saxophone, and I was kind of thinking about getting back into being a front man again in a band. It had been a few years, so I put an ad out in the Chicago Reader and the guitar player from Yakuza called me and I went down and checked out their music and it was awesome. It was like all these really weird time signature changes and just tonally was kind of different. I never heard anything like it before and and uh, we started jamming and uh, like two, three jams in. They're like, do you play anything else besides vocals? Do you play guitar or bass? I go, yeah, I play all that stuff and I play saxophone. And they were like, dude, bring the saxophone down. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, no. And then I did and it, it worked and that became a thing. So here we are. So did you guys feel like a kinship with uh, a band like Candiria? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, when we cut like our first demo record called Amount to Nothing, I had sent it out to a couple people. Um, Steve Joe, didn't know him. I just kind of went through the Century Media website and found this guy. And he, the only reason I picked him, besides the fact that he had the sushi chef, remember that? His picture, when they, was like, they had like profile pictures of all the employees. And his I do was not some, remember that. His, his was some random Japanese like sushi chef, which I thought was funny. But the best thing was is that his first concert was my first concert. Same place. Judas Priest, Poplar Creek, 1986. First metal concert. Where so was, was like, it? Uh, Poplar Creek, uh, Hoffman Estates, Illinois. He's from Chicagoland area. Okay. So when I, and it was Priest 86. And I saw that same show. And I was like, oh, my God. So I felt this instantly felt this like kinship like this dude's got to be cool we both saw the same pre-show and then i sent one copy i didn't want to send to the a rep at relapse so i sent it to their honorable mention guy which is a guy named dave witty oh well get i know dave witty <laughs> and then somehow um maybe it was a little later through steve joe i really wanted to get it to the candaria guys because i they're like my favorite that's why i actually sent the stuff to the century media because i think they had just gotten a deal with them before 300 mm-hmm. density came out or whatever and I was like, man, can you get this to, to Ken? He's an amazing drummer. And then I met Ken in like 2001 at a clutch show. He pulled me aside. He's like, dude, Steve Joe gave me a Yakuza record. This is amazing. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. You know and Ken it, lives out here, right? Yeah, you were telling me that. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen him in years. Yeah, he looks exactly the same. <laughs> like he still like has like a six pack and like beats the drums like they owe them owe money. I, um, I play with Ken, Ken in uh, my cover band called Rebel Noise Group. And we do like... 90s and yeah. 2000s yeah. stuff, which I was kind of amazed when I asked him to do it that he actually would do it because I'm like he's a serious artist. I'm amazed he would actually do it, but um, yeah, I love I love that dude. Yeah, I like I said I haven't seen him in years, but yeah, I've always respected him in that band. I always thought was really awesome. Well, we but the thing is, so basically we signed to Central Media in 2000. Yep, and I think that was the same year Candiria signed, and you guys signed. 2000? Same. Uh, 01. So, oh, yeah. We're around the same time. Oh, maybe, I'm sorry. We were talking to them in 01. And then finally in 02, we just dropped the deal. The record's already done. And it came out like four, five months later. So so, our- so what was that, that like kind of going from being this, obviously a band that, that really didn't fit in with any one thing. You know, maybe you had, like I said, you had the Candiria as a Dillinger escape plan. Right. That kind of whole, that kind of relapse noise sound. 
Um, going from just being very underground to all of a sudden you're on one of the biggest metal labels. Like, did you know, was there like noticeably different things happening for you guys and all of a sudden do doors opened? Um, yes and no. Uh, I mean, yeah, we were getting like, like international press and it came pretty quick. I think it was just something that stuck out a little bit. So, you know, like the, you know, Wire Magazine wrote up this thing and, um, I think all the press in Chicago got real serious about us because they're like, whoa, these guys just put a record on a, on a bigger label. Um, but as far as, it, we were still the odd band out. I mean, even with the, the label, you know, for a variety of reasons. They didn't know what to do with us. I mean, I think Steve Joe got us signed and then he left. So we were like... Oh, yeah. So yeah. we were like kind of s- s- stuck. And there were some people, you know, and there's no slight on anybody, of course, but there were some people at, at Central Media that just didn't weren't into what we were doing, you know, yeah. and they... Not just not even into it. They were vocal, <laughs> vocal about not liking. They're like, it. listen, we don't like you, but we have this contract. We got this thing right, exactly. And I remember, like Steve told me, oh, we got we had gotten a review in Rolling Stone, and I think we were the first band on Central Media to ever get a review in Rolling Stone. And he sent that out via email, like, "Fuck yeah, they got review in Rolling Stone." Silence. Not one. Not one person wrote back. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe Joe. Remember George. Yeah, George yeah, Valley. He, he was always he was always in our corner. So George is the, George is the best uh, yeah. for, for for people listening. To this George Valley was the press guy at Century Media. Yeah. Um, who I met him when he actually was still a college radio guy. Right. And he was in college, and he came out to see God forbid on our first tour ever in uh, Florida in uh, Fort Lauderdale. That's what it was. So he was um, huge God forbid supporter from day yeah. one, and he then he moved to Sumerian Records, and now he actually is doing artist management. He manages Devil You Know, and I still think he does some PR stuff, but right. he's yeah, I love I love yeah, George, good dude, the best. But, but then you know, like I said, no slight on anybody. I get it. We were like we were the weird band, you know, and so and they and they did try to you know do some stuff for us. They ended up getting us on like an Opeth tour, yeah, which was awesome. So what? I, I always find that because I, I, I think people who who have never been signed or, or have this idea of what it means, and I think it, it means something now than it meant 10 years ago, 12 years ago when, when we actually got our record. Actually, I'm saying using these terms, this is 16, 15 years ago. Jesus Christ, we're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, you know, that being on a label especially back then it meant something sure. and that all of a sudden it there's this credibility and someone could make a call on your behalf or yep. or, or or do something like that so for sure so so all right so you're you're getting on a tour with opeth was that the first time you'd toured or the no, first time you did a no, big tour yeah, we now we'd been on a couple tours we'd already had gone out with candaria and burnt by the sun oh um, damn that's sick yeah that was a, that was that was a great tour um They'd got us on some Vans. War- oh, I remember this, this is a good one. <clears throat> they warp got us tour? on some Warp Tour dates, and it was just like West Coast shows. And I guess like I don't know what it was. Like they gave CM like a slot for a couple bands to play. And I remember that we were like the guinea pig band. We we're the new band, so they threw us out there. And I think Nevermore was going to be the next band that was going to do it. After nice, t- after nice t- transition. After two shows, I called Steve. I called Central Meeting. Was like, trust me, tell the Nevermore dudes, don't do this. It's not worth it. I mean, it was like. Nobody there gave a shit. I mean, not just about us, about like any sort of metal in general. Like, Nevermore would have been playing to five people for sure. Yeah. I think that everyone was like, I, I think I met World that year in Seattle, and I we talked about it, and I was like, oh yeah, 
we're supposed to you're supposed to go on warp tour and we did it first and he's like he's just kind of like oh yeah yeah we weren't gonna do that shit whatever nevermore on warp tour should be <laughs> a reality show i know I, because well, now i would say put them on well well now sake. it's 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 completely changed because you had a lot of uh you know the bands like atreyu right who kind of were you know a, a metal I guess a, a more, you know, warp Tour friendly version Definitely. of like what we were doing sure. and bands like Unearth and even a band like Unearth, like eventually that stuff kind of bled into that world. The whole like warp yeah. Tour, Taste yep. of Chaos, Killswitch Engage sure. kind of changed, changed yep. the game with that bullet for my Valentine, yeah, right. event, event Sevenfold. Yep. This is what we're talking. This is like 01, 02 yeah. when this happened. So like, no way. It was, we. I mean... Like I said, we were probably, well, we were definitely the most metal thing that was happening, and we were the weirdest band out there, so that just, it was like double whammy. Yeah. We, we were just, we were destined to fail from the minute we hit stage. Yeah, Warp <laughs> Tour used to be really weird. I mean, Kid Rock did Warp Tour oh, back yeah. in the day, right. but he, he was did. still unknown, and, you know, it would be just, they, it was almost, I guess, a little more of that almost like original, like Lollapalooza type mm -hmm. of mentality, where right. it's like, oh, you're a new thing, just go on Warp Tour and whatever, right. and, it's, and it was kind of a more of a... A different mix where now I think it's a bit more streamlined sure. to like it's this kind of scene it's going to be punk rock it's going to be this kind of very distinct section you know of uh, of the hard yeah. hard music world yep. alright so you guys so you do that you go on tour um, does the band ever become like a job like a full time job or is always kind of a thing that you're doing I mean we supplement we, we tried and then it was like we also had like internal things happening with the band um guitar player leaving coming back and he was kind of an integral part of the early years and we, so it was it was there's this unstable element of things happening inside the band as well as outside the band and the outside stuff we were getting some of these opportunities um the money wasn't there i mean i personally was putting up all, like fronting all this cash and all of a sudden at the end of like where were you getting money from just working i would, normal I would job. work and i did credit cards that i jacked up and dumb shit you know like stuff we sh i shouldn't have done yeah but i felt like we had to get out there to you know just to, to see how the world would, re would react to us i didn't care about money you know what i mean i guess i, I didn't <laughs> well, i didn't have any at the time at the time but then i remember like this is probably like early 2004 i just looked back and i was like oh my god i'm like i'm in debt i'm fucked you know like i gotta do something so you know we kind of had to pull back for a second i had to what what time period was this early 04 okay and you know and how many records at that point had you put on, on central media just one and we only did one we and actually and you know what we never actually signed with them you never signed with them oh no how does that work we did a licensing deal oh okay there you go. Got, that was a funny thing too because years later i mean i don't think they gave a shit trust me but like you know we did a five-year licensing deal which they had never done before again this is I shouldn't even be talking about this kind of stuff. You shouldn't? <laughs> wow. Are you going to get sued? I don't care. No, it's over. But after the five years are up, this is kind of funny. I think it was Phil Hinkle and uh, Brandon. Is he the uh, their, their publishing guy? Yeah, Brandon. Yeah, they, they approached me at South by Southwest. Like Literally, it was five years almost to the, to the, to the month. And they both walked in and they're like, hey, man, how's it going? You know, always friends with those dudes. And they're like, so uh, I sent, what you had to do is you had to send a letter in like six months in, in advance saying, hey, the terms of our, our licensing agreement and... I want the record back. And so I, did, I sent that in. There's no response. So they were like, yeah, we got your letter. And uh, we don't really know what to do with it. And I was like, well, you just can just give me the record back. And they're like, okay, um, what does that mean? Or something like that. And I was like, 
I don't know. <laughs> I'm just following protocol. Well, I, I think it, it comes down to they just deleted who, the they deleted the title from their catalog. Done yeah. deal. That was it. Yeah, so, and and you have a copy of the masters. Oh, you have the masters. Yeah. So there you go. So there you go. Done. That's it. Independent baby. Baby. The independent world. Uh, all right. So you're done with Century Media. So at so at that point, 2004, you're a completely independent entity. Did you guys ever have like a manager or nope. booking agent? Nope. No, none of that stuff. Uh, we did have. Yeah. Maybe we got one. I can't remember when. I can't remember when we got an agent. Um, it's a dude from. It's a, like a straight edge guy from Matt Boston. Pike. Thank you. His assistant. Okay. Woman. I can't remember her name now. We were booked through him, like yeah. his one of his people, for a little bit, like a couple tours. And this was a little later. We had got okay, so we got off Century Media. We. So we signed a deal with Prosthetic um, to do a couple of records, and I think it was the first record we we recorded in 05. It came out in 06, and we hit the road really hard. It was a record called Samsara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the one that seemed to have the most kind of uh, buzz and where it was out, out there kind of yeah. the ether the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one, and we we hit the road pretty hard, man. We like and we toured with everybody. We were on some really whack-ass tours. I was just thinking about... Whack? Like... Whack, like... Um, <laughs> so we were on this tour with these bands. A bunch of... Well, we were the we were hands down the oldest guys on the tour by like 15 years. It was there you uh, go. The number 12, Looks Like You. Yep, I know. Heavy, Heavy, Low, Low. Yes. The Jean Benet and us. And I remember... This How is, did you even get on that? That like, was what, that, like, that, like, that... Like, who was the one that... like was Who was headlining? Number, number 12? twelve, yeah. So they and, were were they like fans or they didn't give no, it? No, they was they it got through the Pike agency or yeah. whatever that girl. She was like you know she would just kind of put us on this random stuff and we got on that tour and I remember Buffalo New York was the first show and uh, there's all these kids like it was sold out like yeah. young kids the scene, that's, like that's, that's this, this, the quote unquote scene. Seen kids. Yep, sixteen years old, seventeen years old, and a lot of lot of like swoopy hair in yep. people's faces. Yep. Okay. Yep. So we're we're setting up, and this kid's in the front row, and he goes, "Dude, dude, dude, what is that?" And he's pointing at my saxophones. I'm like, "Those are saxophones." He's like, "Which one is that?" I'm like, "That's a soprano saxophone." They're like, "That's cool, dude." How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like pretty old and uh so yeah and, the, and we would play and like there'd be no response they didn't know what to do like we there was a show in st louis where i jumped in the crowd and was like barreling through these kids and they were like running for the doors you know just that kind of shit good thing you didn't get sued man you could have, could have paralyzed some uh 16 year old oh, girl I, I mean i know how i know I, I know how to hit them without hurting them you okay know? Like, that just it's like you know just kind of it's like judo you know you can right. kind of take take the hit exactly like, exactly reverse Ex- judo exactly okay. that's exactly how it went down but uh we got along with the bands great. That was those all those kids were super rad, and we had a lot of fun with them. But like, yeah, it was. And again, we're like, what the hell? What are we doing? Yeah, but I, you know, to me, there's something about that that I think is super character building. Like going out on something that even if it doesn't fit, you kind of learn. Like, like, like for us, I was gonna say, what you guys did tours like that too, for sure. I'd say the. Did you guys go out with, with Guar? Yeah. So that uh, was that was that, that's okay. what I was gonna bring up. So it wasn't that. Musically, we didn't fit with Guar or anything like that. Even though obviously they're doing their thing, we're doing sure. our thing, and they've historically toured with pretty fucking heavy bands. Oh yeah. But what it taught us is that we were still pretty new. We had only been touring at that point for like a year, right? Yeah. So we weren't very well known. You yeah. know, it was a handful of people here and there, but it was a crowd that was kind of ready for something. They were intense. They had a lot of energy, and we realized we had to 
perform. Yeah. We actually had to, all right, they don't know about us. And, and in fact, the thing that's, that they're most in tune to might not even be music. It's just they're, you know, you have to, you have to bring something to the table. And it actually taught us how to perform. Yeah, I can see And that. not just sit there and play because we knew it, that it, it, subtlety wasn't going to work. Sure. You, you really had, to, you know, in, in a sense, it, I think it taught us a sense of professionalism that I think most bands, I don't even say most bands, um, if you're the type of band that really only caters to one style or, or I'd say even more directly in like coming from the world we did, which was the hardcore scene, yep. where the hardcore scene primarily relies on crowd uh, interaction, sure. right? So they need stage diving, they need... You know, a huge pit, and in a sense, that's kind of their barometer for how well the show is doing. Sure. But all of a sudden, when you're playing a show and there's a, a barri- barricade that's, you know, 10 feet deep, and people don't know who you are, and they're, like I said, they're, they might not even be there for music. They're there for a show. Yep. You know? Especially Guar. I mean, that's, you don't have to be a fan of the music. You might just be a fan of the costumes and the blood and the semen. Exactly. Spewing whatever, you know. And it's a whole nother level. Yeah, yeah you know, for sure. It, you know, and it, but it, you know, it, so that was something that I think we always had an edge up on a lot of bands because we knew how to turn it to like this other level of performance. Yeah, I've seen you do it. I mean, you guys killed it on, like, when we were, I was out with you guys in Ozfest and I saw you guys turn crowds like that, you know, it'd be a couple songs and boom. Yeah, well, to, yeah. Even, even to agree where I think, you know, I would hear over and over again that. You know, like you guys, like your albums are cool, but what you guys do live, yeah. it's a, it's a different, it's a yeah. different thing, and that's yeah, yeah. and that's maybe a, a testament to like, hey, maybe that what we're doing there, like we maybe our the albums never kind of reached that level, or or maybe we kind of overperformed the music. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think like Lamb of God was like that. Like if you heard like uh, uh, New American Gospel when it came out, it wasn't that well produced it had a very yeah. underground and so when you saw them live and they sounded so good yeah. and they obviously had a huge presence just yeah. everything about yeah, them yeah, was yeah. out the gate was perfect it was like whoa this is that even even for As the Palace was Burned right? I think when that came out it wasn't it didn't have that modern polished thing there was something really raw about it and when you yep. saw them live they sounded even better yep you know yep so alright so you tour super hard and then get nowhere, get nowhere, <laughs> making, make so. even going even further into debt. I was, I was, I was coming home from tours and just working nonstop. And so, like, and so what, so you, you work in uh, the bar industry and in I've been in the service industry this, this whole time since, uh, since the day I turned 21, I've been, I've been either, I've been slinging drinks. So still slinging drinks. That's sl- also what I do, yeah. but I didn't start doing that till two, 2010 when um god forbid pretty much the writing was on the wall that maybe this isn't what we're going to do for the rest of our lives yeah so i started working at uh the bar duffs yep. in, in brooklyn and i started just working kind of part-time taking a day here a day there you know and um for i think for people like us who want to do these other artistic endeavors you know that that world is is helpful because it's flexible, absolutely. And the lifestyle is not that much different than it's, it's pretty close <laughs> than so being like, in a band. Be, be in a band, be a bartender, you know, whatever. It's funny because I've been working for a guy named Bruce Finkelman who owns the Empty Bottle in Chicago uh, for like twelve and a half years now. And with the very first time we sat down, I've been going to that club forever. I've been playing that club forever, and finally, you know, one day he's like, "Why? Do you, why don't you work here or something?" Like, I need a manager. And I'm like, "Cool." And we sat down, 
He's like, what do you want from me? I'm like, honestly, I'm going to ask you one thing. I'm not married. You know, I don't have kids, but I have Banza, and I just want to tour. And he goes, this is your world. This is, this is, how, this is what we do here. It's feast or famine as far as the money goes. Um, and, you, yeah, everybody's in bands. And that's been the case ever since. And, you know, I still work for him um, on a whole different level now, uh, manage different different property for him and stuff like that. But the same, we talked again recently, and he was like, want to kind of pull me into another management role, kind of a, like a more uh, involved thing. And I said, okay, 12 years later, I'm still going to tell you this, you know, I'm still not married. I still don't have kids. But now I have like seven bands and I tour. And if you're cool with that, I'm not going to tour like insane, but I'm going to tour. And he's like, done. Okay. That's well, it. so I, I actually didn't mention this to you. Or maybe I did, but at least not when, since you've been here. So the name of the podcast is The X-Man as an EX. It's because I'm an ex-member of a band. Right. And, and a lot of my writing that I wrote about was kind of about that transition yeah. from quitting and yeah. then trying to figure out the real world. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is just because I've kind of noticed from afar how you kind of have balanced that in that you've been in these, you know, the, like you said, the service industry, but you're always active and you're doing in the, the, you know, I look at a band like Yakuza and there's no way I don't think anyone could listen to that and say, that's a band that's trying to go get rich or that's like, <laughs> like it's, right. it is as clear as day that it is an artistic pursuit. Sure. You know, and what, like, um, what do you think it is about you that, like that all these problems you had, like doing a shitty tour or going in debt, yet you still want to be an artist and, and, pursue that life more so than just getting a regular job and putting on the suit i don't I, well i mean there's a couple of times i'm not gonna lie to you i mean that I, that was i just was gonna do that like when i was telling you before i looked back and i was in debt i was involved with a, a a female that i was really into and i started to think about like you know maybe maybe i shouldn't be doing this you know um and uh i went to go take a a, a union test um for uh, this elevator union, my father's been working for like forty-seven years, and uh, I to went, like repair elevators. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's you know it's good work and everything. And he was gonna get me an in or whatever. And I went to, I went to go take a test, and somehow they had lost my paperwork, and I wasn't allowed to take the test. But and I was like, and I I was like, that's the sign. You're not doing this. Go right back to what you just. Don't worry about it. Okay, everything's fine. You know. And uh, but yeah, there's been a couple times. Not not as of late. Not in the last ten years. But like. You know, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should just fucking give this up. I just can't. I don't know. You know, I just can't quit. You think I, it's a just a, a compulsion? Like it's not something you're we're, we're in control of. It's just it's all it's all I ever wanted to do since I was like, you know, ten, eleven years old is play music or be involved in music some way, shape, or form. And I just kind of figured out a way to like, you know, I don't. Here's the thing, I've told this people all the time. Like I work festivals, I work at I work at clubs, and I play clubs, I play festivals, and I play in this cover band that plays you know, to 5,000 people sometimes and sometimes it plays to, you know, whatever and I play house shows with my solo band or whatever. I don't, I don't care and honestly, I can be on either end of the spectrum as long as I'm somewhere involved in all of that, I'm cool with it, you know. Barring that, eventually I play. If I don't play, I'm going to freak <laughs> out. Like, But yeah. I'm totally cool with like going and going to Fun 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 Festival and managing that, that shit, you know. Or, you mean managing bars? Yeah. yeah. Or I could easily be the, oh, and I've, this has happened before too. I'll be managing the bars and be like, oh, by the way, I got a club gig tonight at 1030. I got a split, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then take off, you know? But I just love that whole world, you know? I are, love 
and I, and I want it to I want it to keep going and whatever I can do with my energy to like kind of feed it on all ends of the spectrum. I'm in. You know. I remember I was working at Duff's and we played. God forbid, played the Afropunk Festival 2010 and the Bad Brains headline. Hell yeah! And while the Bad Brains were playing, I had to leave Ooh. to go work. Don't you hate that? Where to to do a shift at the yeah. bar? Yeah. But it actually felt kind of good. It was yeah. like I get to jam during the day and kind of work at this metal bar and work. Yeah. Listen, and I'll, I'll tell us for everyone: working at a heavy metal bar like Duff's is it's it is work. It is physically hard. You're exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. But it's it's you're basically hanging out with metalheads, yeah. listening to metal, yeah. you know, and most of the people are super cool and, yeah. it's, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So as far as I was concerned, I was like, it's like as far as jobs go, this is a pretty metal job. Yeah. You know, did yeah. you did you work in like metal bars, punk bars, like stuff like that? Just work- I mean the bottle, which is like everything. I mean that's just what do you mean? It's just a regular bar. Well, empty bottle. You, you came by there before, right? Did we? I don't know. I know. Well, one day you did. Well, Byron, I know you guys were like maybe picking keys up at my house. Okay. Because yeah. uh, I think Byron and like uh, Corey walked in because my friend drove by and was like. What are the God forbid guys doing walking into the empty bottle? And I'm like, grabbing my house keys. And they're like, that's cool. You know those guys? And I'm like, yeah, they're staying with me for a while or whatever. It was something. He was driving by and saw those two like get out of the van to like come up. Empty bottles, super eclectic programming. I've loved it. I've been Do they door. have live music? Oh, yeah. Oh, dude. We got, we got to talk about this dude, place. Dude. 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 <laughs> yeah. We're about to celebrate a 25th anniversary next year. And I've been hanging around there since 1994. A book just came out this year. This guy, John Dugan, wrote this book. I got to do like a couple interviews in it. It's pretty pretty sweet. Uh, yeah, shows seven days a week. Super eclectic programming: metal, punk, indie rock. A lot of a lot of indie rock on the way up and the way down. Uh, Honky tonk on Friday afternoons. You know, jazz improvisational music. That's where I was going for years to go see shows there like that. Hell yeah, we just had nails there before they did they break up. They, they went on hiatus, which is like super fucked up because it was like I really like that record. <laughs> Baby, but yeah. I was just like, you couldn't, you can't go five feet without seeing a shirt. They're oh. on, they were on the cover of Decibel. Like they Massive. were, like they're about to, like really, like like be the new Napalm Death. Like yeah. be like the kings of grind. Totally. Um, yeah, we just said we had them like a couple months ago, and then all of a sudden I read that they were like, like on whatever, and I was like, oh man, what? So when you have problems with a three-piece band, <laughs> shit is, you know, we need to. <laughs> There's not that many elements. There's like two dudes in that band who really don't like each other. And I don't I don't know those guys. Right. Uh personally, I don't know really much about them except they're just like one of the heaviest bands I've yeah. ever heard in my life. And I'm yeah. like I'm like, I've never been that angry about anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know where that comes from, man. That's a yeah. you know, but um but uh all right, so so going back, where where are we talking? We we're talking about oh yeah, yeah. So just kind of surviving, you yeah. know, and I and I kinda want this this show to like speak to those guys, you know, maybe like me who are in, you know, or young, even younger in their mid twenties in their, in their thirties who are like asking themselves those questions, because I think this environment is probably it's, there are so many talented people now who are not going to go pursue music because you can't make a living. Like there are like people who would be, you know, the next Bob Dylan, the next, you know, Ice Cube or something is now he's going to be, you know, he's, you know, he's going to go into tech or he's going to become it going to finance or become a DJ sure. or become a programmer or something. And it's, right. and because it, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways we're, you know, we're losing, we're going, you know, I hopefully it, it stabilizes. And, but I think, I think, you know, 
when you look at it just from a business standpoint, from a business model standpoint, the touring apparatus for a band, you have to, what you have to bring in just to get to a point where even you're at a middle class level is the, the kind of distance between starting from ground zero and, to, and that point is so long now that it's like, you know, I, I, I have a lot of empathy for young people kind of trying to start because you're basically saying I have to uh, mortgage my well-being in the short term, yep. which could affect you long term. Definitely. Um, just to have kind of a shot at this. Whereas like back in the day, even us, you know, like God forbid, 15 years ago, we had tour support. Yeah. You know, we could get five grand to do, you know, a theater tour just just to help us out, to buy a banner, to maybe, you know, put it towards, a, you know, sharing a bus or, you know, pretty much every time we went to Europe, we got tour support yeah. and we needed it. We yeah. would not have been able to go. Right. You know, and we weren't like doing those tours and then coming home with money. Most of them, we come home break broken even. Broken even. You yeah. know, we didn't start, you know, really being self-sufficient. With Europe, probably with Europe, where we didn't take any tour support, probably to our last like two tours, where yep. because we had good, by that point we had gotten good guarantees, and that's the idea is that you use the label yep. to to help you build your brand, yep. and then once you're at a level, then it's like all right, thanks guys, now you don't have to take that money, right? But now you don't, I don't know, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if people yep. have to have to like get investors or they have rich parents or or what? Yeah, you I know, mean, that's let's, okay. Let's so let's take this back to where I was talking about in 2004. So before things started getting weird in that regard where the tour sport is now non-existent or there's no record sales to back that up or whatever. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm in a band that's, it's, it's an artistic endeavor. It was never, I, I was hoping that it would, it might, it might, you know, flip into some kind of financial, there'd be some kind of financial recourse, but the, the reality of it, it wasn't. So I, I said to myself then, okay, first things first, we're getting out of debt. This is ridiculous. Secondly, how can I bring, some income in to keep this going. I still have to play. I still want to be a part of bands and write and all that kind of stuff. So the bottle gig came up. That helped. You know, so every time I came up from tour, I could work a month straight, make a bunch of money, whatever, get through, pay the bills. Um, and then as, as things, as time went on, I started, this is really weird, but like I happened to start a solo project, just me. And that's just called Bruce Lamont. I have one record out. I have a better name. What's that? Lamont. There's a band called Lamont. They're broken up. I, I, I talked to them via some friends saying like, can I just head the name back so I can call it Lamont? Lamont. Well, well the thing is, so that's, I, mean, that's, <laughs> I need to, I need to tell know? people. So basically Lamont is basically the name of like a black dude who like talks with a cigarette on his mouth with a do-rag on. So to us, that was what we conjured in, in our head. So all the God forbid dudes, we would just call Bruce. We just call him Lamont. What's up, Lamont? And, and, and Randy Blythe. Randy, he so did, he so started did, calling you Lamont. Oh yeah, you got Be- before. You got, no, after? you guys got him to do that. Okay, like the, you with like you would all call me Lamont. He thought that was funny. You, I didn't see him for like a long time until about five years ago, and I ran into him at a show in, in Chicago, about places. I'm like, hey, Randy, blah blah blah, and. Later in the night, I was like saying goodbye to him, like, "Hey, you know, we got numbers, exchange numbers. Come to my house." Like, see you later, Lamont. You know, he like Lamont. threw it out there, and then like, and he he did it again in a text, like more recently, like last couple of years, like Lamont exclamation point. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. I, for, I remember, I remember for you guys, and then he whatever. Well, so. we also we would call each other monkey as a way to <laughs> diss each other for a while. Like, get my face, monkey. And then now, pretty much for the probably until one of us dies, we're gonna we're, we'll 
see each other and greet each other as hey he'll be like hey monkey <laughs> God. hilarious you know yeah. so so I, I had to just give a little background on on the Lamont right. you know but um, which is French am I no it's not, it's not that, that's been a misconception this is if it had an E on it would it be or a capital French? L-A capital M-O-N-T oh, okay but it's not that it's actually Scottish it used to piss my mom off to death that when I had teachers I would spell the name and she'd be like that's not how it's spelled okay like, alright calm down lady relax For- for the Scots, we should be. We should. I feel now we should be. You know, I'm quarter Irish. You're Scottish. We should be drinking, but not just coffee. Coffee and water for now. That's it's not, right. It's not five o'clock anywhere. I mean, actually, it is five o'clock in Chicago, but not here. Well, all right, we'll, get, we'll get to that later. I feel civilized. <laughs> wow. Uh, started doing some solo stuff and started doing some gigs. And guess what? You make fifty bucks. You make a hundred bucks. Just you. Not bad. Yeah. Pay a band fifty bucks. Hundred bucks. Not so good, you know. Yeah. I've been thinking about that lately, about the idea of, um, like I said, the, the the business model. Yeah. Like how being a comedian, it's just a better business model. It's not a better medium. It's not more, you know, like it's just one yeah, person. Exactly. Or being a DJ, it's a just better one person. It's a better business model. We're we're yeah. kind of like it's funny you think about uh, things like globalization and automation and now that's come to music where now bands they don't have a keyboard player the keyboard is on a track yep you know and or uh you know like i've seen animals as leaders periphery they've been playing there's no bass player the bass is on a track yep uh and which tells me essentially and actually i was working a festival and that got rapper atmosphere and who's awesome and he had like this guitar part as like the main part of the song, and it's just, it's just a on track. a track. Yep. And I'm like, we're all expendable, and people just, just like, you know, people. Don't, a lot of people don't know this about the American economy, where they think all the factory jobs are going away. No, we produce more now than we did 30 and 40 years ago. We're just doing it with less manpower because sure. our automation yep. is so good. Yep. And. That's, you know, like we need to, the funny thing is because of the record sales going down, everyone's saying, all right, we got to tour more. Right. All right. But even that model, it's like we need to figure out a way to do that. But where the where the cost isn't so high, where, it, you know, until you're making, you know, the way I, I, I looked at it with God forbid, until we, we, we unless we were making like at that kind of around that thousand dollar a night benchmark. Right. Then the band was basically. Not, not. We'd have to tour just in the the what the guys maybe one crew guy in a in a yep. van. Yep. You know. Yep. And, but you but to get get over that to get when you're making fifteen hundred two thousand, then all of a sudden you can turn that little section of profit. I said, all right, now this actually is, is meaningful. Yes. So I said the solo thing, and then that's funny because I had a conversation um, last night playing in San Diego, and uh, Tristan Stone from Author and Punisher came out. He's a solo artist, you know, builds his own instruments, amazing okay. metal dude. And we were talking about um, the, 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 the rigmarole of touring solo and that kind of thing. And we're both kind of old school where I don't use tracks. Yeah. I, I, we, I do a little bit. I like created tracks that I made myself, but I try to like create everything on the fly. So like that, Reggie, that, old school, that Reggie Watts shit where you like kind of do the loops. Loop, and, yep. Yeah, yeah. So and, and just that's just because... I'm like old school, and I feel like I'm cheating if I like use tracks and not instead of not. Um, and then he he and I were both saying like, yeah, he's like I felt the same way too. But and I go, yeah, but there's some tracks that I that I use that if I 
built them on the fly that would take 15 minutes and it would bore the shit out of people in the audience they'd be like what's going on and, that's just, and it's just too tedious I'm like I'm not gonna sit here I made the damn track I'm gonna play the track and then I play over the track so it's like whatever that's the solo thing um, and we're talking about financially like I said it works as the years have gone on I've done more solo tours and I just went out with Scott Kelly last year we did two months him, just him and I in a car you know, and what kind of car though? Were we talking Prius? Were we getting good gas mileage? What's uh, going it was, on here? Yeah, it was. I couldn't get a Prius, but it was like we. I think we used like the Nissan something, and we got like thirty six miles to the gallon. There you go. So I'm talking about big, guys. Big, big trunk. Get stuff, everything in there. Yeah, we take all that in consideration, and we were even still staying at hotels. We didn't stay at, like friends' houses and stuff like that. You're and grown men, and we both right? hotels. Yeah, we, we are most definitely both grown men, and we, you know, we both came with money, like good yeah. money, yeah. you know. And we didn't play to more than fifty people at night. You yeah. know, sometimes it was a house show, sometimes it was a small club. You know, whatever it works, and that's 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 one model. Here's another model. There's a band called Led Zeppelin too. Led Zeppelin. All right, so let's. All right, so let's. And that's and that's the that's the that's the biggest one. That's okay. So the, when did when did Led Zeppelin? So now for people listening all to these this, parallel unit, all these yeah. universes happening at once. So it came to my attention maybe about four or five years ago that Bruce through our through our friend, our mutual friend Denise Kariki, yep, um, brilliant brilliant woman, one of my best friends, uh, that. Bruce Lamont from the art, eclectic, crazy, noisy band Yakuza is the lead singer for one of the best and biggest Led Zeppelin tribute bands called Led Zeppelin 2. I went to go see him at the Gramercy Theater in New York, and there's like seven, eight hundred people there. It's fucking packed. And he's not from New York. He's from Chicago. And I'm like, what the heck? What is this? And this band was... I was blown away. It's the best. Not that I've seen a million Led Zeppelin tribute bands, but it's the best I've ever seen. Um, Thanks. So when did when did this even start? Okay. So this for fun, we started to do this like 15 years ago. Me and the guitar player and his old band. They were called Busker Soundcheck. They were like a 90s like kind of pop punk touring band. Um, Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. This 
is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. It was just like a Halloween thing, you know? That's like a thing in Chicago where bands would dress up as their favorite rock and roll stars. So you, you started out dressing up? Oh, yeah. Yep. And in fact, we, we, weren't even, we didn't even do Led Zeppelin at first. What did you We play? did Black, Black Sabbath. And we were called Black Stabbath. And it was just, again, only on Halloween. We just did it for fun. And we, and we would never play any, it was all deep cuts. You know, we would never play Iron Man. We wouldn't play Paranoid. Um, it was like just weird stuff that we liked, you know. And we did a couple. We did a couple shows like over a couple of years, and we're like, "Man, this is this is fun," but it's like, I don't know, it's a little limiting. And I, and I wanted to get into the Do years, and those guys didn't like the Do years, and I was like, "Well, this is not going anywhere." Then who cares? And then we were in, we were living in a rehearsal space, and Paul, the guitar player, hit, just bust into Custard Pie just for fun, and we did Custard Pie, The Rover, and In My Time of Dying, and then the guys were like, "Dude, you sound more like Plant than Ozzy," and I was like, "Hmm, let's do Led Zeppelin next year, okay?" And we're like, "Same deal." No stairway, no cashmere, all deep cuts. And we did this. This was a Halloween thing? Halloween, 2001. And uh, we did this show. We had no name. We were just, we just like put the word out like, hey, we're doing a Led Zeppelin show. <clears throat> and we had this insane crowd, like people packed to the gills. And they, where'd you play? A place called the Bee Kitchen. And at the time, it was just before E2, so they were allowed to, it's like a 225 cap room now, but they probably put like 400 in there, 450. Very dangerous. Very fun. <laughs> Remember when things were fun and dangerous back in the day? <laughs> Listen, I was just at, uh, they, they have the, have you heard of the Ultimate Jam Night they do out here? I know here? what it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they yeah. used to have it at the, what's it called, uh, Lucky Strike. Okay. And this place, it's a pretty big place, maybe holds like seven, 800 people. Yeah. And I think they put like 2,000 people in there Ooh. when Steve Vai and the mystery guest Dave um, Van Halen, one Oh, David Lee Roth? David Lee Roth, that guy. See, the coffee is not working, guys. I can't, <laughs> I can't think of David Lee Roth. But, yeah, they, they, there were so it was. It's still the most packed show I've, I've ever... Actually, it's the second most packed show I've ever been to, but the fire, fire people came and shut the show down. Oh, that was the show... That felt dangerous. That was the show where they were, the rumor was that the DLR solo band was going to play. They were playing, but it, it wasn't announced that David Lee Roth was there. It was announced that it was Steve Vai, uh, Billy, Billy Sheen, and... and, and uh, uh, was it Greg Bissonette? I don't know the drummer's name. Yeah, that's him. But and then apparently it was going to happen. So even with just honestly, I think Steve dude, Steve Vai just yeah, the, you know, you put that guy's name and pe- yeah. people are going to show up. But dude, the original DLR band, I would have been pretty stoked to see. Steve I was pre- honestly, it was so packed in a way. I was I was almost happy that it just it, got yeah, it got yeah, broken. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was too yeah. there was nowhere to go. Yeah, it's just uncomfortable. But anyway, so so that that felt dangerous, and I was like. Six seven months ago, yeah, so I'm yeah. just saying you can get some danger, man. Yeah. You know, you want to step on a nail, go do it, man. All right, 
There's danger. I mean, you live in South Side don't, of Chicago, don't son. Don't fall asleep on the railroad tracks, baby. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right, so you play the show. It and packs out. Yeah, it was fun. And then we decided to do it a couple more times. Like It was, again, a once-a-year deal. And around 04, when I was getting broke, I had to figure out how to make some money. And so I kind of went to the guys, and I was like, hey, can we do this like more than once a year? People seem to really like it. And there's a club in town called Martyrs. We didn't want to play any like cover band clubs. We wanted so we just like kind of kicked around some ideas. And this place, Martyr, we were, Martyrs were friends with the owner Ray Quinn, and they would occasionally have like a band like that. But it, it felt like it was a little, it was perceived like it was like a little more legitimate if you yeah. played there. So we're like, let's let's play Martyrs. So we did like in a I don't know springtime, and it went really well. So then we would do like spring and fall, and then we were doing like four times a year there, and that was good money. You know, I was like, okay, great, here's some more income. Paying off the bills, you know what this? Oh, I can supplement. And I started to see the the light bulb starting to go off. I'm like, interesting. So what if I play in this cover band every once in a while, and I'll funnel the money to cover my 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 failing art band? <laughs> Not failing, good musically, bad financially. Um, but that that was that was the idea, and then it's been kind of snowballing ever since. Okay, so then fast forward to 2008, and we play Martyrs in like. November sold sold out packed um, my boss at the bottle is really mad that I won't ever bring the Led Zeppelin band to Empty Bottle he said this is ridiculous why won't you play my club how club. big is Empty Bottle uh, like a 350 400 cap room okay at that and, point had you outgrown some of that size or well I'm gonna tell you the story so Martyrs is around the same we sold out Martyrs so he offers me this really whack date, like the 3rd of January. It's like right after Christmas. It's right after the holidays. Yeah, I'm like, no rough, one's going to show up. It's a rough up. time. He's just trying. I mean, I, in my mind, I'm like, you're just trying to fill the calendar. Fine. And he gives me some crazy door deal thing. Like 70 like pre-sales. I'm like, okay, not bad. But it'll be all right. It'll be like you know, a couple people. And <laughs> I remember sitting at the bar, talking to the bar manager, and this Ukrainian guy comes in and is like, how much were the, the tickets for tonight for the Led Zeppelin show? And we're like, they're like, oh, it's $10. He's like, I'll buy 20 and all of a sudden, we're downstairs in the dressing room, and I'm getting reports. There is a line, like, just like a mile long. It is sold the fuck out, packed to the gills. People are drinking their faces off. We come on, and people just, like, lost their minds. Okay, so cool. We just did two sold-out shows in six weeks. I'd been trying to get us into the House of Blues in Chicago for years, and, I, and they were just kind of like, nah, kind of putting us at bay, whatever. I finally emailed the agent the next day. I'm like, look, we just sold out Martyrs. We just sold an empty bottle. Can you give us a night? Any, it can be an off night, whatever you got. And she comes back to me, and we were friends, and she's like, okay, I got this night. It's a Saturday. We're going to do a door deal. Probably not going to get any more than 500 people in here, so don't expect anything. I'm like, all right, good. This is now six weeks after the empty bottle show. Two weeks later, I get an email, and the first line just says, dude. And she's like, we're already at 400 pre-sale, and there's like four weeks left. I'm like, keep me posted. Every week, another 100, 150, boom. Now, are you boom, guys doing, pro, like, what kind of promotional apparatus do you guys have? We didn't do that. Nothing? Posters, posters around town. They, I mean, the, the Live Nation juggernaut that we finally figured out something that, you know, if, if, if it's brought to you, like, from that sort of angle, that it, it completely legitimized us, in a sense, because people were like, well, if they're playing House of Blues, then they got to be good. Yeah. You know what I mean? And... uh yeah, that show. It was funny because then my boss was like making fun of me. He's like, oh, so you're playing House of Blues now. How, how's that selling? I'm like, we have 600 pre-sales. And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, dude. Again, sold 
massively sold out. They turned away like 300 people. There was like 1,300 people in the room. And we were like, what the hell? And this was what year? This is now, this is now early 09. And I mean, within months, all of a sudden, there's agents coming in. Hey, you, know, you guys can draw. So we got an agent and we started touring. And we played like Boston and New York were like two of the first places we played ever. And same deal. Sold out shows. Then we went down to Texas. Sold out shows. It was just like, what the hell is going on here? You know? And trust me, we've had our ups and downs. But it's generally been good. And it's, it's another source of income for me, you know, for... Is that more your day job, quote unquote, day job than no. the bar stuff? No. It's still like... No. I mean, it's... Could it be? Potentially. But again, you know, I want to... I mean, as much as I love the... It's, it's cool. Like, I, I like it. It's fun. But like... I'm still a creative guy, and I have yeah. other needs. And Sometimes it still feels like work. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And I don't mean to like, I mean, if people come to see it and they love it, I'm, I'm grateful for that. You know, I don't want them to think like, oh, I'm up there. This really sucks. Like, no, not at all. No, I think it's, you know, I think it's fun and it's cool, and it is what it is, you know. I'm, but, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, you know, nobody that comes to see Led Zeppelin 2 really gives a shit about any of the other bands I play in, I don't think, you know. Yeah. And well, that's fine. So this is something that's kind of interesting to me. I, I never, like, to me, to me, it's funny, like, going back and listening. For some reason, I, like, my memory of Yakuza was crazier vocally, you know, but I went back and listened to it, and almost, it almost had, like, your vocal almost reminded me of, like, Perry Farrell or something like that. Like, it had that kind of, okay. you know, uh, range and, and some, of the, some of the moves. And now with Led Zeppelin two my question is, had that ever, had ever dawned to you to sing for a more... I guess accessible rock band if you can kind of do that style. Oh no, yeah, I never did think that. And then it was funny is that you know, if there was if I ever had like a, a if there was ever like a will or desire to do that, I, I think I get it from playing in the Zeppelin band. Like I, this, that that's about as accessible as you can get. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I wouldn't want to play in Kingdom Come. No offense, Kingdom Come. If anyone knows who I don't know. Is. I, I don't know Kingdom Come. They they were on Monsters of Rock in 88. They were the first band that played. And the singer sounded just like Robert Plant. Oh, okay. And we were like at 16 years old. I'm like, eh, that's bullshit. These guys sound like Led Zeppelin. I'm, just playing a, I'm rather just playing a Led Zeppelin cover band than a band that sounds like Led Zeppelin. Well, no, well, well not, to me, it's terrible. That's a terrible uh Well, to me, it's not example. even about being in a band that sounds like Led Zeppelin. It's just being in a... You could be in, you know, which whatever modern rock, sure. active rock band with, you know, you can clearly do. I had a few friends that were. You can do a lot. If you can sing like Robert Plant. Yeah. I mean, even Robert Plant, by his own admission, can't sing like Robert Plant anymore. Yeah. So that clearly is an indication that you have a, you're a pretty good goddamn singer. Thanks. <laughs> so you can do a lot of, you, you have a lot. Like, it made me realize that, oh, maybe I wasn't really understanding you know how yeah, how, sure. how how much depth you actually have as a singer and, and which which what you can do it's just something I, I i i thought of and it's just maybe just your taste you have eclectic taste and you're in two things that are a bit off the wall i'm always in a off the wall stuff but yeah i mean funny because i had a couple friends that were like um dude you should try for stone Temple pilots and i was like fast track it i'm not sending a tape in i'm not i'm not gonna get an asshole i just I go, can you continue to do that? I'm like, easy. Don't worry. Who, who was it? It's a couple of my friends that, like, one guy knew them, you know, and that was when they, they were taking demo tapes for their new singer, and they're like, you should try for some double pilots. Ha, ha, ha. I'm like, 
I will. Do you do? Can you do like that baritone sure. kind of? Yeah, yeah. Or as they call the yarl. For you there, like a ham and mustard shake. <laughs> sure. Whatever. You, hey, whatever you want, guy. You can do. Boom, wow. boom, boom, boom. You can do it gimme, all. Gimme. That's that. So, do, do, do you um do so? I and another thing that's really kind of fascinating to me because I started my own cover band, like I said, mainly for fun. But as like in the back of my head, like, oh, this would be a cool supplemental income sure. thing. But I, but I want it to be fun. Yeah. First, first and foremost, do like you said, do songs that I've never heard other bands do. Like we would do like. Uh, Unsung by Helmet, cool. we play Judith by a Perfect Circle. These songs I've never seen any right. any band cover. I'm yeah, sure yeah. they I'm sure they have, but it was just stuff that like, fuck yeah, I'm, you know this yeah. is this is cool. Yeah, but um, you know, being that you know I you know I think you you have the artist's mind. Is there some kind of you know uh, conflict there between kind of like the you know I guess the commercialization of music. Like, is there anything there, or is it, or, or is it the, well, the, the, the two just don't have anything to do with each other to you? Um, I just, I find it fascinating. I mean, like, being in the, the thick of it all, like, this band has a high-powered agent. We have management. Um, I deal with higher-ups at Live Nation and C3 and all these companies that would never in a million years would any of my other bands ever even fall on the radar. Anybody. You know what I mean? Um, and I have this relationship with these people, and they're and we're cool, like back and forth, and like whatever. Um, me being like, I've always been, you know, I've kind of grew up being this kind of, you know, my metal punk rock DIY ethos would normally have issues with like, you know, dealing with the man. But you know what? <laughs> it's my cover band. Yeah. And I'm dealing with the. I'm cool with dealing with the man. I'm the man's paying me, so yeah. I'm like. Whatever. So I have no issues with it at all. I mean, I feel like I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of cool. Do you feel? Do you, <laughs> I made a joke in an interview that was like my my solo band because it was like last year ago. My solo project just played a house show, and my cover band played an arena <laughs> in the last month. Just saying, this the music world is fucked up. <laughs> but is it? it you it, know. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I I, I think. What really inspired me to kind of do the cover band thing was seeing Steel Panther. Oh, yeah. Partially just because they sounded so fucking good. Like, they sound better doing Motley Crue than Motley Crue sounds like Motley yeah. Crue. Yeah, And I was like, and you just you just see how, like, like I said, same thing. They would play every Monday. It'd be sold out. And people actually gave a shit. Yeah. And then they... they Create to me, they created a new business model. I said, okay, so now we're gonna do original material, and then now you go see them, and they'll they don't really play covers. Yeah. Maybe they'll do one, yeah. maybe a couple. Um, you know, I think you know they kind of do different types of shows, but I've seen shows where they they don't do any covers, and they're they're literally they are literally an arena band yeah. in the, in, the, in the UK, and they've created something different they kind of broke the mold. It's like part comedy show, part cover band, part original band. And, you know, I, it just made me this idea, like, you know, the, there's not one way to do this. No, there's not. And it's funny you say that because they've, they've always been on our radar, as with this band we're playing with, the Australian Pink Floyd. Like they're, and that's they're, what they're called, right? The Australian Pink Floyd. Yep. And is they, there a what? Why is there – so there was a Pink Floyd show on Tuesday in L.A. There was one on Wednesday. Is there is it like the anniversary of something? I or? don't know. I, I saw you post that, and I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, there's a bunch of Pink Floyd shit going on. 
I think it's, I mean the Australian Pink Floyd always toured the U.S. like once a year, so that's a random occurrence um, that this happened. No, I don't think there's anything going on. Um, but what I want to say is, is that like for us, we would try to think out of the box a little bit, like what to do with this thing. And very interesting, you, what you just brought up about Steel Panther. That's one of the one thing that we've always dabbled with a bit. So we recorded, um, we recorded a Yardbirds song that Led Zeppelin never played called Happenings Ten Years Time Ago in the style of Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. just to kind of see how people would react and then we put it out as a single um, we also re-recorded Immigrant Song it was actually for a, a Chicago Blackhawks promotion mostly but we made a video out of it and just kind of threw that out there and now we're at the point where our guitar player has written a bunch of stuff and he's like how about we write a Led Zeppelin 2 record and I said let's do it why not who cares? You know what? It's funny. It, it's like fan fiction. Yeah, totally. It's you know, it, it's like, hey man, I didn't like uh, the third Terminator. Like, I'll make my own Terminator movie. Yeah. In a weird way, you know, and it's it's this idea of, especially when you have a band like that. That's so. Like the idea of Led Zeppelin is so big, that it doesn't even make sense to me. Like, yeah. and to me, the only other thing that's bigger than that is maybe like the Beatles. Like right. the Beatles were so big. There, you couldn't build a structure that they couldn't sell out right. or that people wouldn't show up. I mean, that's a band that could literally draw yeah. a million people yep. everywhere they go. You just put them in the middle of a field and people will come. And, you know, and Led Zeppelin's probably the next version of that and what, sure. they, what they kind of represent. And then when they disappear and they're no longer there, you know, it, what that means to people never goes away. Sure. So, so it's just waiting for someone to fill it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I've watched, I've witnessed it. You know, I mean, like people getting just emotional and like yeah. connecting. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. And it's funny because like the last five or six years, um, not the bigger shows, but generally if it's our shows, we we make a point to go out in our costumes and you know take pictures and meet the fans, go by the merch and that kind of stuff. And so I get a lot of one-on-one interaction. And there's been times where like people have like been my father, you know, loves your music and he passed away and that, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, and I have to be like, I'm like, oh, that means so much. Thank you. And I'm like, okay, it's not my music, just so you know. I'm yeah. just an actor, but that's cool. Another thing I wanted to say too that I, we've borrowed from is my sister was in this this uh, play for a long time called The Million Dollar Quartet, which is basically the telling of the, the famous night at, at uh, Sun Studios where Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash got together and they made a musical out of it. Hit musical. Killed it in Chicago. It went to, it's been in Vegas for a long time. They tour, all those things. And it just seems like another shade of, 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 I don't even know what you want to call it is like this reality. Um, people, it, it, it legitimate, it's legitimizing this idea of like what, what cover bands can do and what, what they can be. I mean, apparently they toured through LA and this guy named Cody Slaughter was doing Elvis, and he's amazing. I mean, so good. It looks just like freakish. <laughs> Priscilla Presley came, and she freaked out. She was like, he's so good. Like, she was talking to him, and my sister met her, and said so she was, like, f- shaking. She's like, oh, my God, he's fucking Elvis. Well, it's this, you know? this I think this idea of uh, that's becoming more crystallized now with, you know, you have holograms. Yep. We have, yeah, <laughs> you know, virtual. You know, yeah. uh, PlayStation has a new virtual reality system where this idea of kind of, or even if you look at what was that movie with Johnny Depp where he gets his consciousness is uploaded into the oh, computer. Oh yeah, uh, Johnny Mnemonic. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's <laughs> no, that? that's from like the nineties. <laughs> well, um, you know, that's where my head's at. With Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Oh, that was Keanu Reeves, right? Sorry. But it's called like trans something. Anyway, so but this idea of kind of like you said, something goes away, and yet it doesn't really have to go away. We can simulate and we can have a virtual or whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, there's there's this the the idea of something of impermanence is kind of going away. It's kind of weird. It's freaky. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of freaking out myself a little bit just, yeah. just, just, just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, well, no, that I think I think it's really, I think it's really fascinating, you know, because I I've always been a fan of, of cover bands, and that's that's why I started one. And sure. you know, I'm having some troubles with my trying to figure out how to how to break break the code of how how it works. You know, it's. Yeah. Uh, but to to me, the the thing I res, I respect about cover bands is all these people in original bands that want to talk shit or or not really give them respect. It's like yo. If you're actually in a cover band that's doing well, you're working, you're playing, playing, you're, yeah. you're playing all the time, yeah. and that's really to me what it's about yep. is about getting up there and working your craft, learning the craft, and perfecting it because it's all going to be helpful down the road somewhere. Of course, you know, definitely. And I think learning, you know, you know, because. Most of us, or at least if you're like me, I learned by playing other people's songs. I learned by playing Metallica songs sure. and Pantera songs. How that that became the foundation for what I was as yep. a player. Yep. So there's there's not really much difference in that when you get up in a lot of those bands. You know, it's Metallica. They started out playing covers, and yep. Van Halen started playing covers, yep. and Pantera started. You know, so it. You know, I, I think it's it's super fluid. Yeah, sure. You know, I agree. Um. So the last thing I want to I want to talk about before we go is okay. uh. You're in a band called Corrections House. I am. Which has been labeled somewhat as a underground super group. So we've got what well, we got Scott Kelly from yep. Neurosis. We yep. have Mike Williams from I Hate God. Correct. Who's the guy doing keyboards and That's stuff? That's Sanford Parker. Sanford Parker. He and I looked at his, I look at Sanford's uh, ex bands, and like, and this dude was in every band. He was in Noctmistium. Yep. He was in uh, Leviathan. Or he, it, he's or, an engineer for that. He was in uh, Twilight. Twilight. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I was thinking Twilight. But anyway, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. So how does something like this come together, especially when – is everyone kind of spread out? Mike's in Louisiana. Scott's in Portland. Sanford just moved here. That's why I stopped into L.A. to say hi to him. Um, he was in Chicago. Um, Sanford's an engineer. Basically how that group came together was um, – Scott and I have done shows together over the years, just solo stuff, and we we played something, something. It was like January 2012, and it went really well. We did some songs together. We we're like, we should we should really figure something out. Yeah, cool. Uh, at the same time, Mike and I um, had done like a noise show down in South by Southwest, and then we were going down again, and we did it again, but it was different. He did some spoken word stuff, and I played music behind him, and people really seemed to enjoy it. They're like, man, this is cool. Uh, it was actually at a Century Media showcase, and they were like, a bunch of guys were like, man, that's nuts. You guys should put something together. We're like, cool. So we were. I was talking to Mike, and I was talking to Scott separately, and finally I'm like, hey, man, you guys know each other. What, what if we did like a solo tour together, like the three of us? And uh, Mike, you can do spoken word. I'll do my stuff. Scott, you do your stuff. And they both were like, that's great. Let's do it, man. Like, whatever. And no, again, solo project. We don't need as much overhead. We can travel in a car. It'll totally work. And then... While we were talking about it, there was this, we figured out a time frame. It was going to be like January of 2013, blah, blah, blah. And then we're like, man, well, we got to do something together, the three of us. And like, yeah, what do we do together? Let's, hey, we should probably get it recorded. Yeah, we should probably put it out. Okay, cool. Hey, I'll call Sanford. He can engineer this for us. Great. 
call Sanford up. Hey, man, doing this thing with Scott and Mike. Not quite sure we're going to go with this just yet, but, you know, we're going to need an engineer. And, you know, Mike will come up here and we'll work on it. And then Scott will send some stuff in. Cool. Yeah, I'll do it. Half hour later, he calls me back. He goes, man, I want to record this. I'm like, okay. He's like, I want to be in it. And I got an idea. And I went, all right, give me your idea. He's like, four solo sets. I'm doing all electronic music. And I think I can figure out a way to make this work. And, you know, until I keep the cost down, I'm the engineer. I'll do it. For, I'll just do it. You know what I mean? Like, don't have to cost. And we'll, let's, we'll just write, you know, we'll bring Mike up here. We'll work with Scott. Scott at a studio, you know. And that's how the band became a band. So yeah. we wrote two songs um, and put a seven inch out before we played our first show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was. I remember when I first heard about it, I'm like, this sounds, first off, Corrections House, that's a hard ass name. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The only thing harder, you can just call it prison rape. That's it. <laughs> that's the only way you can get, first that's a hard name. You, you hear yeah. like, you know, yeah. there's a bunch of heavy hitters and then it's, it, you know, it's, it's industrial yeah. music. Like it, it reminds me of that like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's got that, you know, there's something just, angry and like it's, it's and intense yeah, about it's, it it's um and you know and that you know so i was like wow this is like just very interesting sounding and then you kind of do things where you do add like uh distortion and stuff to your to your uh, saxophone yeah I have, I have some like uh, i have like an octave pedal um harmonizer pedals i use and, and distortion just kind of weird just to, just to kind of create some more weird sounds along with the electronics and the guitar and stuff. Well, the thing, I think sometimes when you're playing, when I'm listening to your different bands, I don't, like, you're playing and I don't realize that it's actually a saxophone. A saxophone. Yeah. And I'm like, I have to go back and I'm like, oh yeah, I was probably, like, where was it? Because I was listening to music and I was like, where does he come in? And then I'm like, oh, it's, he's using effects and it's, yeah. it's yeah. getting real. If you see it live, then, then you yeah. see it happening I, or, yeah. No, I watched, I watched some, some, of, the, some of the live stuff. Yeah. Um, where did the, like, kind of imagery you know, because you guys, there's almost like a uniform. You guys have a really yep. awesome logo. Yep. Where did all, well, like, where did the idea we, to kind of have. Again, talked about all that. We wanted to have, we didn't want to have it focused on the four of us, like, visually. So we are like, you know, maybe we'll create this, like, sort of iconic style symbol. We had a friend of ours draw a few things up for us, and we kind of gave him some direction on what we wanted. Um, that became the symbol. Um, we kind of built it around that. We wanted everything to be very uniform. Um it's, that's kind of an industrial thing from back in the day. I'll give a little nod to that. Um, and, you know, we only have, like, one band photo out there of the four of us. It was just for, like, a, this magazine in France. Otherwise, it was always this imagery. And then this weird... <laughs> okay. I'm gonna make this, try to make this as short as possible. There's this guy that used to go to hardcore shows back in the 80s. I think he's from Southern California. I'm not quite sure. But he, he knows Scott. And his name's Seward Fairbury. And this guy is fucked up, okay? Like, he's a real whack job. I, I've never met him. I don't... I mean, he emailed us, but Scott knows him. And this guy, somehow, he saw the pr first press release that came out about our band and started sending all this, like, conspiracy theory shit to us, like, this is why you guys are a band. There's all this fucked up shit going on in the world. And he would just, like, feed us all this stuff. Send lyrics to Mike or like to us like we get all so this just stuff. like a legit kind of like Alex Jones kind of yeah, like supposed you to be know I mean, tinfoil hat guy yeah, exactly so we kind of incorporated him and we're like well okay if you're going to tell us to do and he would tell us to do things like what well, do you, you have to put this out you have to do this and we're like alright well maybe it's still, he's speaking to the Lord to you guys well, that's what we thought so we're like well okay fine you're going to be this way we're going to we're going to 
kind of exploit you a little bit. And we started to use his quotes and he would send weird imagery and stuff and put that shit up on your own Instagram. personal Charles Manson. Yeah. He's nuts. And like I said, I mean, he would just write this really fucked up shit and like, and we loved it. And so it's kind of cool. So does were like, Mike, some of this stuff is he reading is some of it, his mo- this- mostly it's Mike's. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of his, he would like Mike would read through it and be like, I'm not saying that. Like, you know, like just cut through and stuff like that. And we'd be like, whatever, you know? And, uh, yeah. And then like the guy kind of inspired, like all the visual stuff for our video thing, because we just we just started like like Seward Fairberry, let's create an image for this guy. So he's like the the focus on all of our videos. It's like we the have. totem, the guy that wears the he wears this black. Is it really him? No, it's not him in the videos. We just we no we created. We don't like I said. I don't know what the guy looks like. I never met the dude. Yeah. Um, Who does he send stuff to? It's mostly Scott, and then he would forward it out, but it would say stuff to, to us, like he would tell us certain things. It was it was really weird, like you know, like I would, he'd be like, Seward sent this email, and I would I'd be like, Bruce, blah 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 blah, blah. and I'd be like, how does he fucking even know what? Is I don't know, you know, he just would read stuff online, and then just he was, it was it was awesome. I mean, it's kind of cool, like we're like, fuck yeah, this is pretty nuts. Um, so yeah, we made him our minister of propaganda. Minister and, of propaganda, yeah. I love it. I yeah. love it. How, um. Why was what was the uh, decision making process behind not using a, a drummer live? Um, just never came up. <laughs> it yeah, I mean we talked about it maybe down the road. It'd be something that we we would maybe do. Um, I don't know, maybe f- for financial reasons. I mean, it, the, it the, the first shows we did, we did four solo sets and then a corrections house set, and we drove a Scion because Scott was sponsored by Scion so we got a free car so we had to fit everything in that car that we could take on tour with us four dudes a guitar a baritone saxophone my pedal board Mike had all his stuff in a little bag and then Sanford's stuff no merch and merch oh we got a roof rack thing and we would put stuff up there and we made a good friend of ours um, coordinated this deal where she had all we had poster art for every night of the tour from a different That's artist, awesome. but every artist would drop us <laughs> like 25 to 50 posters. Well, we couldn't sell 25 to 50 posters every night, so all of a sudden we had stacks of... Po- now we have all these fucking posters in the goddamn car. We have no... Pl- I mean, if we had a van, no problem. Bring them on, you know? Yeah. So, like, yeah, we were, like, just trying to give them away at some points. Like, like, people would buy them for a while. They'd be like, just take these. We can't we can't carry these anymore, or, you know, or, you know, had to ship some home and that kind of stuff, but, you know, um, yeah. So is there, now this is, I'm assuming when I look at a band like this come up and just kind of like who, who you know, like is there like a secret society of underground musicians? Like it's like you hang out, it's like the guys from Baroness and they hang out with the guys from Torche and, and then like Mastodon. Like, like I feel like there's like all this, you know, the Neurosis and Isis and all these people. Like is that what's going on? Are you guys like being really cool? And having like cool conversations <laughs> and smoking cigarettes, you know how did you know? Is it, I just it, no? I don't, I don't know who's smoking. No one's smoking. No, no one's, I just no feel like no cool people. Two thousand sixteen. Who no like have smokes. really good taste and are really artistic and like living. Oh, he's like do bad yeah, baby. I got this idea. Yeah. Doom, 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 doom. What's that? Um, I'm just saying. I just feel like the like all these collections. I'm like these are like. There's, I mean, there's not too many bands that have as much credibility as like an I Hate God True. or a Neurosis. Like, there's a, these are uh, entities that have the perception is that they've stayed true to like their the original vision, and it's they it's, have. It, That's, they're, they're, I mean, they've been a massive 
influence on me on so many levels since the 90s. You know, um, they run their own record label. They do music outside of the neurosis style of music themselves. Like, you know, they do, you know, Scott and Steve do acoustic stuff. And, you know, Tribes of Neurot is all about this real experimental noise thing. And I always thought that stuff was really badass. And then when I finally befriended Scott, you know, a dozen years ago, um, we just hit it off on so many levels. But it's funny because... <laughs> Uh, as as serious as conversations may go with us, which they're not that serious, um, it, the the one thing that we have in common more than anything is we love sports, <laughs> both of us, particularly baseball and hockey. Why is our called sport? Sport, or yeah. like me and Mitt Romney, that's our thing. Sport. sport. Okay, so this is sports. So we are, and we and we play this this game called Tap Sports Baseball, and we're really really competitive. He's more competitive than I am. Like he'll he'll shit talk me all the time, and I'll shit talk him back, and. That we probably that's that's our biggest bond. Like that's a daily a daily phone occurrence is like, oh man, you fucking what did what? And I'd be like, motherfucker, you, you did this. Blah, 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 blah. No, there's no like serious like. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we got some gigs next month. Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Like you know. Well, trust me, I have the, I have the same thing, but it's only basketball. We have a. It's basically me, my three friends from Jersey. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, how well you are, how familiar you are with uh, New Jersey post-hardcore, but it's the drummer from um, uh, Gaslight Anthem, the drummer, drummer from X Number 5, and my buddy Will, who used to play in this band, For the Love Of, and we just talk shit about basketball. So we're actually going to mm. do a, I don't, like, I don't know if we're going to do like a real basketball podcast, or I think we're going to do a show on here first as like a test run, and it's going to be crazy. So I, I know all about it, but That's just cool. basketball. Yeah. You know, That's base, cool. Baseball is about... You know, I get the same. When you mentioned that, it makes me see, feel the same way that kid did when he asked you about the saxophone and what right. it was. Right. You know, that's just the, I'm done with baseball. I used yeah. to love baseball when I was younger. Yeah. Now I'm just like, I'm yeah. done. I'm uh, done. Yeah, I'm. I'm obsessed with baseball, and I really love hockey too. Um, there you go. Basketball, football, it's fine, but it's just not the focus. But yeah, to each their own, whatever. Listen, it's I was like in Chicago when the playoffs were going on, when the hockey playoffs were going on, and that is a hockey. Town. Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? I felt like I, I didn't want to say nothing bad about anything. I might get stabbed or hate yeah. crimed. You know. It's uh it's pretty serious business, yes. Especially when you're I mean, that team's been just they've been in the playoffs every year for the past since two thousand nine and they've won three cups. They're so. good. But I'll tell you what, this last season where they got knocked out in the first round, um, I was actually pr- rather grateful because I will tell you, being being in, an involved hockey fan, um, p- it puts a lot of stress and on your life. And I, I, know. I know I've got a couple extra gray hairs because of those said uh, cup victories. It's it's too much to handle, and it, it's very distracting. I'm supposed, I'm supposed to be writing music and running venues. No, I'm sitting at a bar every night watching hockey, <laughs> or I'm at the games watching hockey. Listen, I was the same. My, losing my shit. I, yeah. I basically I worked Coachella. And then for like six weeks, my main job was watching the NBA playoffs. And I, I probably watched after the first round every single playoff game. Yep. Like it was pretty embarrassing. And that, that's when I actually I started writing my blog again about basketball. Because I was like, there's no way I can do this much consumption without contributing anything or then it becomes a waste. Right. So that's the thing is you take your obsessions <laughs> – and then you filter them through your creative life, and, right. you, and you, you keep you keep that right. flow going. Right. I mean, I, I did write for Decibel for nine years. Uh, their uh, extreme baseball preview issue. There you go. I mean, I did I did something to justify my. Well, that's how I got started. Was uh, writing. I was writing the Hoop Logic blog on Metal Sucks. Right. 
So I know all about it. There you go. Well, listen, buddy, I think, you know, we've been going for a while now. And uh, I think you feeling good about this? I feel great about it. Awesome. Me and him, we, we met the other day and we talked. We basically did the same thing, but just talking about politics and whatever. So we could literally do this all day. Yes. Probably. Um, the new Metallica single. Dude. Dude. Hardwired. That's right. We'll listen to it. I'm going I'm to play it. I'm, I'm going to play it next after this. Cool. No, I'm not. I'll get sued. But uh, <laughs> anyway, man. Love you, man. Good love to you see too, you. Man. Thank you. And, I will, and uh, it's a wrap. Boop. That was the song Fruitcake by one of Bruce's bands called, a brand new band called Brain Tentacles. And like I said, we didn't get a chance to talk about it during the interview because I didn't know about it. I had heard about the band and didn't even realize he was in it. That song is actually off their self-titled debut, which is on Relapse Records and also features my old friend, Mr. Dave Whitty, the drummer from Municipal Waste and Discordance Axis and Burnt by the Sun, fellow New Jersey boy, and also Aaron Dallison from the band Keel Hall. Brain Tentacles has a band camp where you can go get the record, listen to it, and I'm sure anywhere we find Relapse Records. So again, I want to thank Bruce and I thank you guys for listening. Mamba out.
Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.